Father in heaven, this, uh, this topic today, it's tough. It really is. It shows a lot of hurts and a lot of wounds. It exposes a lot of scars in many people's lives. I'm grateful that you've shown us how to deal with those things. I'm grateful that we have your very personal example to follow. So what I'm asking now is that you'll allow us to see it, that you'll allow us to apply it and to live it. And then, Father, would you provide for us the healing rain, heaven's rain, that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. A few weeks ago, I started a series of sermons that just come from 22 years of history in the ministry. That's really where it comes from. That's where we, we grabbed hold of a lot of this stuff. Some of it are things, or some of it is full of things that, that I have just determined on my own. Other things come from the teachings of other people, professors in, in Bible college, different books that I've read. There's just a lot of resources that come together to make these sermons work. When we started it out, we looked at things that make men tick, and then we looked at things that make women tick. We talked about marriage, and we've talked about parenting. Today I want us to talk about a different side of relationships, the sides that cannot be healed, the ones that reflect brokenness and appear to remain that way. There are a lot of relationships like that, a lot of relationships that without Jesus Christ, they will remain broken, a lot of relationships that have Jesus on one side and no Jesus on the other, and that still reflects the brokenness. So that's where we're going to go with this this morning. Like I said in that prayer, this is not an easy topic. It's tough for a lot of people because you have relationships just like that in your life. And we're going to be looking specifically at family relationships. Now, I, I went through an epiphany about 20 years ago that helped me understand this. Some of you are thinking, an epiphany? Did you get that checked by a doctor? What, what is that? Well, let me actually explain that word for you. There are two different explanations of it. The first one is this. The Epiphany is actually a Christian holiday celebrated on January 6th of every year. There are a number of particularly Eastern Christians that celebrate that day. Here's what it's about. It is a day given that commemorates the coming of the Messiah to the Gentiles. In Western Christianity, we tend to just ignore it. Most of us don't celebrate it. In fact, let me show you. How many of you celebrate the Epiphany on January 6th? Just raise your hands. Go, don't be shy. Just throw your hands up. Nobody does. Folks, we really should because that's a day that really does matter to us as Gentile believers. It comes from the teaching of the Bible when the three wise men or the Magi came to Jesus to see the little baby. Actually, he's about two years old by that point. But the folks who said, we want to set aside this day, they looked at that teaching in the Bible and said, this is significant for all of us. Let's celebrate it. So they did. They turned it into a holiday called the Epiphany. But that's not what we're talking about today. I want you to see a different definition. This is the one that I really want you to focus on. A sudden intuitive perception of or insight into certain things that make things work. That's the definition of epiphany. Terry has one up here that kind of sums that up. It is a matter of us exploring something and then understanding it. Now you can read definitions like that and think, that doesn't make any more sense to me than the word itself. So here's Phil's simple definition of what an epiphany is. The light went off. For me, 20 years ago, I believed that every relationship could be healed. Every one of them. 
I'd come through Bible college, been in ministry a couple years, and I thought if we just sit down and talk through things and everybody gets on the same page, then there can be perfect healing. When the light bulb went off, I came to realize that that is not always the case. There are some relationships that will not be healed. Now, they could be, and let me say again, through the miraculous power of Jesus Christ, they could be. But a lot of people choose not to let that healing occur. And as a result of that, broken relationships exist for a long, long time. They will stay there, in essence, forever. And no healing will ever come. That's the understanding that I came to. That's tough. It really is, because we long for healing, we pray for healing, we teach that healing can happen, yet it doesn't. And the strain remains, and brokenness remains, and the pain remains, and it causes scars. When that happens within a family situation, that pain goes even deeper. Let me illustrate it for you this way. Imagine that we were out to dinner together and there were six or eight of us sitting around the table and we were having a great conversation, sharing a great meal, and then all of a sudden the conversation just dried up and there was a lot of dead air. I'm one of those people that doesn't like dead air. It bothers me a lot. And so I just thought, well, let me fill in these holes and we'll get everybody talking again. So I throw out a question like this. Could you just tell me, and I'm talking to everybody around the table, could you just tell me a word picture that describes some difficult people in your family? And everybody looks back at me and says, what in the world are you talking about? So I, I explain it a little bit further, say something along these lines. Well, I'm just putting together a message or some teachings that, that I'm really trying to explore, and I need some illustrations to help me with it. So I'm looking for word pictures I want you to think about people in your family situation that you just don't get along with. For whatever reason, you just don't get along with them. Can you give me a way of describing them? And now all of a sudden people start thinking to themselves, Ah, I know what Phil's talking about. And words start to flow. There was actually a preacher that did that, sitting at a dinner party. He had six or eight people around the table. Dead air came. He threw that question out. He had to explain it, and then people began to respond. Here are some of their responses. One fellow started it out by saying, a parasite around my neck. And the preacher said, well, who are you talking about? What, what do you mean by that? He said, my wife has a brother that refuses to work, and he expects us to support him. He's like a parasite around my neck okay pretty good description the preacher thought wow we just went right into the deep end there and and nobody's going to come up with anything better than that until one lady said a cactus wearing a silk shirt and the preacher said well what do you mean by that and this lady said i'm talking about my mother she looks good on the outside but if you get close to her you find out that she is dry and prickly and sucks the life out of everything that's her description of her mother the preacher thinks to himself okay there is no way that it could get any worse than that until finally a fellow says a marble column the preacher said well who are you talking about and what's that mean he said i'm talking about my aunt when you look at her she can be beautiful but when you get to know her she is high hard and holy that's his description if we ask everybody in this room to follow that same type of pattern, more than likely you could find somebody within your family situation that you could describe just like that, grabbing hold of word pictures that would illustrate it. 
Because 95% of the people sitting in this room, I'm not willing to say 100% because it isn't true, but 95% of the people sitting in this room have people in their family that it's difficult to deal with. There are people sitting here right now that have people in their family dynamic that they would just as soon never have to share Christmas dinner with again. They would just as soon not have to sit down and do Thanksgiving with. They don't want to even send cards to them because they're hard to get along with. And there's a strained relationship because of it and a lot of pain that exists because of it. Now Jesus, again, could heal both sides. But what tends to happen is Jesus heals one side and that person does everything that they can to try to fix the relationship and the relationship never fixes because Jesus doesn't change the other person. And by the way, it's not because Jesus isn't willing, it's because the person isn't willing. And if they're not willing for that healing to come, then the relationship stays broken. And within a family, that can cause all kinds of hurt, all kinds of pain. Now, I want you to know this. If you're of that 95%, you are not alone. There are other people sitting here right now that are wrestling with the same thing. They've been dealing with the same issues probably as long as you have. And you're not alone just within this room. There are people outside of this building wrestling with the same things, and they have been forever, and there are people in the Bible that have wrestled with the exact same thing. In fact, from the beginning of time, this has issued, or been an issue. Follow some of these examples. We don't have to go very far into Scripture to see it. In fact, the book of Genesis will tell us that Cain killed his brother Abel because of jealousy. They had a strained relationship. Go a little farther into the book of Genesis and you'll find two brothers named Isaac and Ishmael, the sons of Abraham. The Bible says that Abraham loved both of them, but Isaac received the favor of his father. Ishmael was the firstborn. He didn't receive that favor. He was, in fact, at one point kicked out of the home. Isaac was the favored son. You can go farther into the book of Genesis and find more examples of this, like Jacob and Esau. Esau received his father's favor and Jacob longed for it. Esau didn't really seem to care. So Jacob, in an effort to try to receive the blessing of his dad, he figured out with the help of his mother how to do an end run around his brother and steal the blessing of his dad. Sold it to him for a bowl of soup is what Esau did. And he had no idea what was going on. They remained at odds with one another for a long, long time until God healed both of their hearts. Continue on in the book of Genesis and you find Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers. Get out of the book of Genesis and continue on in the Old Testament. You'll find out that David was the least of all of his brothers. His father Jesse, when he looked at David, he saw very little value in him. When Samuel came ready to anoint a king and he told Jesse that that king would come from his home, it would be one of his sons, Jesse brought every other one of his sons before Samuel and he forgot about David. David was just left out there on his own, mocked by his brothers and forgotten by his father. David was the one that was anointed king when he became king. The Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. Yet even within his own family, there were some strained relationships like this one. This is, this is just pretty forthright stuff. He had a son named Amnon. He had a daughter named Tamar. Amnon, David's son, raped Tamar, David's daughter, his own sister. 
And the Bible says that he despised her afterwards and she equally despised him. Absalom, another one of David's sons, would actually take the life of Amnon because Amnon didn't murder but raped his sister and Absalom loved his sister Tamar. You can see the brokenness of the relationship. After that point, David actually went on the run for his own life from his son Absalom. Family dynamics are tough. They really are, and they have been since the beginning of time. They've always had some strains within them. Those strains can really hurt. They can really leave some problems. You might think of it like this. Most relationships are like entering an elevator. You push the button, the doors open, and there's people inside the elevator. You can choose to willingly go into the elevator and do life with those people. So you go into the elevator, the doors close behind you, you push the button or somebody else does, the elevator goes up, it goes down, and you ride all over the place with the folks that you are on that elevator with. If you enjoy them, you stop at the same places. You might even get out at the same times and then get back on the elevator, push the button again, go up, go down, and journey through life together. If you don't enjoy those people, when the door opens, you can get out unless they're family members. And if they're family, you're stuck. There is no way to get out of there. You know the old adage, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. And sometimes the journey up and down through life is anything but a joy. And if you had the choice, you would push the button, the doors would open, and you would get out. But you're not always given that choice where family is concerned. So what you have to do is go to the Bible and figure out how to deal with these things. And there is an example. It comes directly from the life of Jesus himself. Isn't that interesting? Jesus had broken family relationships. Ones that were strained all of his life. If we will study them, we can find patterns that will help us deal with the same types of strained relationships. Let me show it to you this morning. We're going to start in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 6 number of people in modern Christianity believe that Jesus grew up in an idyllic home as an only child. There was Joseph, there was Mary, and there was Jesus, and that's all there was. But that is not true. What we know is this. The Holy Spirit was the heavenly father of Jesus. Mary was his earthly mother. Joseph would become his earthly father by God's ordination. After the birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary lived together as a married couple, and they had other children. They were the half-brothers and half-sisters of Jesus. They grew up in the same home. They grew up doing what every little kid does with his brothers and sisters. They fought with one another. They loved one another. They spent time with each other. They got to know one another. In Jesus' particular situation, his brothers, particularly his brothers, refused to accept that he was the Messiah. They knew all about his conception. They knew all about where he came from. They knew all about the Holy Spirit and Mary. They knew all about God's ordination on Joseph, yet they did not believe the words of Jesus. They didn't believe who he was. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that, it, that he has been given, that he does, even does miracles? Let me get my tongue working. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? 
There's the names of his brothers right there in the Bible, just as bold as all get out. Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his own hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed by their lack of faith. Listen to verse 4 again. It's really curious to me. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor. Can you hear the pain of that verse? My own family doesn't believe in me. My own family doesn't honor what I've said. My own family does not share my faith. My own family does not share my belief. Some of you know exactly what that's like. You have strained relationships in your family dynamic because of your faith. Because you're a believer in Jesus Christ and other people don't understand it. Maybe they knew you before you became a Christian and they can't accept the changes that have come about in your life. Maybe they knew you before Jesus and to see you today is too much for them. And maybe, just maybe, they're skeptical of the things of God. They're skeptical of Scripture and they don't want to spend any time in it. So they reject your faith. That's what Jesus is talking about. Prophet can have all kinds of honor everywhere else. But in his own home, there's nothing. There's a lot of pain there. Good reason for it. Things get worse between Jesus and his brothers. Go with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 7, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Here's what's going on. Jesus is in the northern part of the kingdom, the region known as Galilee. Jerusalem is in the southern part of the kingdom, the region known as Judea. During the Feast of the Tabernacles, everybody would make their way to Jerusalem so that they could be near the temple. Jesus purposely chose to stay in the region of Galilee, which, by the way, is also where Nazareth is at. He's performing miracles. He's preaching. He's teaching. And his brothers are saying, Why don't you go south? Why don't you get out of here? Why don't you go down to Jerusalem where there's bigger crowds? Let them see what you're doing. They didn't believe who he was. They didn't believe the miracles he was performing or the words that were coming out of his mouth. And so with sarcasm dripping off of their lips, they're saying, why don't you go down there where more people can see you? It'd be like us saying, why are you performing those miracles here in Libby? There isn't a big enough crowd here for anybody to see those things. Go to Spokane. And what we're really saying is, just leave. Get out of here. You're an embarrassment. We don't want you around. So they're trying to drive him away. It gets worse for Jesus. From the Gospel of John, why don't you go back with me to Mark. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered there, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. Listen to this. This has got to be so painful. For they said, he is out of his mind. Jesus just went in to have dinner. People followed him everywhere that he went. And he taught them in those situations. And his family heard about it. They went to get him because they thought he was a lunatic. They were embarrassed by him. 
Can you imagine, if you listen real closely, you can hear this. You can hear the brothers saying to Mary, Mom, do something about him. If Dad was still here, he would deal with this. Mom, do something about him. He is crazy. We can't stand what's going on. It gets worse in Jesus' life. I want you to go with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 4. Jesus is again preaching in the region of Galilee. He's actually in Nazareth right now, his hometown. Now remember, he's already said that in his hometown, there is no honor for a prophet. But he's in the synagogue. Tina and I had the privilege of sitting in that synagogue a few years ago. It was amazing, the very synagogue that Jesus sat in. And he is reading from the scrolls of Isaiah. And he's reading about the coming of the Messiah. And in that situation, he declares himself as the Messiah. The people that were listening were appalled by that declaration. And in chapter 4, this is what happens, verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. From the city of Nazareth, you can see all sorts of mountains. If you look off to the west, you can see Mount Carmel, which is where Elijah performed the miracle with the prophets of Baal. It sits right on the Sea of Galilee. If you look out from the city of Nazareth, you're looking over the valley of Armageddon and off to the left of the city, you see the Mount of Transfiguration and you see the mount that they're talking about right now. It's referred to as Mount Precipice. There's a huge cliff on the edge of it. They left the synagogue and they walked to the top of it. Jesus, unable to escape, they walked to the top of that mountain and they took him right up to the edge of the cliff with one intention and one intention only, to throw him off, that they might kill him. Now that was the intention of all of the people that were in the synagogue. What really amazes me is not what you read in this passage, but what you do not read in this passage. Here it is. At no point does the Bible say, and his brothers stepped forward to stop it. It does not say that his sisters were standing on the edge of the crowd yelling objections to what they were about to do. Where were they? They knew what was going on. Nazareth is not a big place. Little tiny country burg at that time. They knew everything that was happening and his brothers were not there. So now Jesus has to turn and face the crowd alone and walk back through it totally by himself. He understands. Folks, Jesus understands what it means to have strained relationships with family members. He knows what it is like to have relationships within your own family dynamic where you're not accepted. In fact, where you are rejected. Jesus is acutely, intimately aware of it. So I want to show you a couple of things that he did to make his way through this. The first one is this. At no point did Jesus try to change them or change himself. He simply stayed the course. And the only way that Jesus could do that was, was by looking for acceptance from someone greater than his earthly family members. And in Christianity, that's exactly what we have to do. If you are seeking the acceptance of other people and that acceptance is not forthcoming, then you've got to take it a step above them. 
and you have to begin looking for that acceptance to come from somewhere else. Maybe you have a father that never blessed you. Maybe you have a mother that is always critical of you. Maybe you have an aunt that has always told you that everything you do is wrong. Maybe you have a cousin that has always tormented you, or a a niece or a nephew, whatever the case might be. In those relationships, if there is no acceptance, you can find it someplace else. Look at what happened in Jesus' life. You're already in the the Gospel of Luke. Just go back with me to chapter 3, verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. That's where Jesus went for acceptance. It didn't have to come from his earthly family. He began to understand, or actually Jesus always understood, but he shows us how to do this, that we might begin to understand the power of our spiritual family. God said to him, this is my son. With him I am well pleased. Most of us would take those words out of the Bible and we would say that they are words reserved only for Jesus. They don't apply to anybody else. But the truth of the matter is, they apply to every one of the children of God. And if you listen closely enough, you can hear the Lord say those exact same words about you. The Bible would teach in the book of 1 John that you are God's child. In fact, John writes it like this. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God. The book of Ephesians would teach that we are adopted into the family of God. The book of 1 Peter would say that we are joint heirs with Jesus to the kingdom of God. You are a child of God. And if you listen closely enough, you can hear God say these exact same words. This is my son. This is my daughter. With him or with her, I am well pleased. I love your life is what God says. You're doing it right. Keep it up. You're on the right path. You're following the right course. Don't listen to what anybody else says. You are my child. I love you. And I am pleased with you. If you have never heard those words from your Heavenly Father, let me encourage you, in the quietness of your own prayer time, take a bold step and ask God this question. Father, are you pleased with me? And then be quiet and listen and wait for the answer and if you are a child of God and you are living the way God wants you to and doing the things that God wants you to you can hear those words if you apply it to relationships Lord are you pleased with me then you begin to ask yourself, am I honoring God in this broken relationship am I honoring the Lord in this strained family situation am I doing what I am supposed to You ask God for the validation of it because it isn't going to come from any place else. Ask the Lord to provide it. And He does. He really does. Here's the second thing that I want you to see from Jesus' life. At no point did He try to force behavior from anybody else. What I mean by that is this. He did not change His behavior, change His actions, trying to change the actions of other people. He simply stayed the course. He was not trying to gain their approval by becoming someone different. 
He was not trying to gain their approval by doing the things that he thought they wanted him to do. Jesus was himself doing what God had ordained him to do and traveling the path that God had set him on, and God was pleased with his actions. He did not try to become somebody else that others might approve of him. Folks, listen to this. If you have somebody in your life that is a jerk, and they are constantly treating you like a jerk, and you are always changing your behavior, hoping that they will no longer treat you like a jerk, it isn't going to happen. And you know why? Because they're a jerk. That's exactly it. So no matter what you do, that same reaction is going to keep coming. You cannot constantly be trying to be somebody else to bring about a different reaction in other people. You have to do what is right between you and the Lord. If you have somebody in your life, maybe it is a mother, a mother that is very critical of you and you are seeking their blessing, so you're constantly trying to do things that they won't be critical of. What you have probably found out through the years is no matter what you do, she will always find something to be critical of, no matter how hard you try. That is not your fault. That is something that she has to wrestle with. Her criticism is not because of you. Her criticism is her own personal struggle. So you cannot change your actions to force a reaction from her. There's one very wise author that has said it like this. If you are constantly trying to change the opinions of other people about you, then really all that is happening is you're being held captive by those opinions. That's it. And it does work that way. If you are trying to change their thoughts and you're changing your actions to bring it about, you can keep that up forever and it's never going to make any difference. Over the course of the last 20 years, I have seen that happen over and over and over again. I'm going to become a different person, the person that they want me to be so that they will accept me. And once you become that person, they don't accept you. You may have somebody in your life that says that you have constantly made bad choices and you could change a dozen times throughout the course of the years and they're never going to be happy with it and that isn't your fault, that's theirs. Somebody could say amen. amen. Somebody could say it with a little bold conviction. Amen. That really is the way it works, folks. So it goes back to you living the way you're supposed to live, doing what you're supposed to do that God might be pleased with you and in the end, you may see what you have been waiting for forever. Let me show it to you. We're going to go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. Jesus has just ascended into heaven. He was taken up in the clouds. He told his disciples that that was going to happen. After the 40 days that he spent on the earth after the resurrection, it finally has happened. The disciples were all together to see it. Now they have returned to Jerusalem where they are waiting for their next step. The Lord has promised the Holy Spirit. He said that the Spirit will come. He just hasn't come yet, so they're holding on for that. This is chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And listen to this. This is beautiful. And with his brothers... They were there. Those are the same brothers that tried to kill him. Those are the same brothers that were embarrassed by him. Those are the same brothers that refused to step in and save him. Those were the same brothers that wanted him just to get out of town. And now, after the resurrection, they believed. 
They're the ones that struggled forever to accept that he was who he said he was. And here they are. Isn't that great? It really is. Here they are. There is a strong possibility that every one of those brothers saw Jesus after the resurrection. The Bible does not tell us that they were present at the crucifixion. The Bible doesn't even tell us that they saw him after he rose from the grave. But there's strong implication that they did. And because Jesus lived the resurrection, his brothers began to believe. And they were there waiting. And that's what happens when we personally live the resurrection. It changes people's lives. James would become the leader. His brother would become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Jude, another one of his half-brothers, would write one of the most insightful books of the New Testament. It sits right before the book of Revelation, one of my favorite books. Those were the brothers of Jesus Christ, and they were present right after he ascended into heaven. They were there with the disciples waiting for the Holy Spirit to come because Jesus lived the resurrection. And that's the way it works. The only healing that may be possible is by you living the resurrection and it may only come after you're gone. But imagine the celebration in heaven when you and whoever it is that you had a strained relationship with are together in the presence of the Lord and they tell you that they're there because of you. You may not see the change on this earth. That's the epiphany that I had 20 years ago. But you stay the course. And you live the way that you're supposed to live following the example of Jesus. Don't try to change them. You only let Jesus change you. Don't try to force their behavior by changing yours all the time. You do what's right in the eyes of the Lord and you honor God. Sometimes, sometimes, that means that you have to put some pretty healthy boundaries in place. Because in order for you to live the resurrection, you may not be able to be with those folks. Particularly if they're attacking your faith. It may be that you have to build some big boundaries to say we're not going into that conversation or we're not going to spend too much time together because we know that there are bear traps laid all over the place. And we're definitely not going to let anybody attack the other person's faith and belief in Christ. Boundaries matter. If you want to know more about that, I would be glad to sit down and talk with you about it. It even goes back to the honoring your father and mother that your days may be long on the earth. Sometimes, if there are strained relationships there, you have to put boundaries up in order to follow that commandment. Now, that's a a whole different type of teaching, but it works as we go into this. Some of you are thinking to yourself, okay, that's family members, and I don't really have problems with family members. I have problems with some other people in my life. Most people live with what's referred to as the Linus Syndrome. The Linus Syndrome comes directly from that great theologian Charles Schultz, the author and illustrator of the Peanuts comic strip. Here's the Linus Syndrome illustrated for you. Little Linus, you know Linus, he's the guy who carried his blankie with him everywhere and played the piano. Linus kind of had an Eeyore mentality as he approached life. It just... Nothing was ever going well for him. But on one particular day, Linus was really excited, and he went up to Lucy, his sister. Now, Lucy was one of those people that could suck the marrow of life out of everyone. So Linus went up to her and and just declared, big as life, I've decided what I want to do when I grow up. And Lucy said, what's that? He said, I want to be a doctor. Lucy said to Linus, you could never be a doctor. Linus said, why not? Lucy said back to him, because you hate mankind. Linus thought about it for a little while and he said, I don't hate mankind. I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. (laughs) There are a lot of folks that have the Linus syndrome within them. You have... 
people that you live next to or people that you work with or people that you just casually meet in different situations that are really difficult to deal with. And there are strained relationships because of... Now, there's other people that, that just like Linus, they would look at mankind and say, I love mankind, but people sure mess the soup up. But for most of us, it's only one or two people that we have different relationships with that are really difficult. And the Bible gives some wonderful guidelines for what we're supposed to do with those relationships as well. But if you want to hear all of that, you have to come back next Sunday because we're out of time. And I'm going to jump into that next week. I hope you'll be here for it because the Bible is so complete in its teaching, beginning with things like this from the book of Romans. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's a springboard into the rest of the teaching. So I hope you'll be here for that next week. Right now, we're going to do something kind of bold with our invitation time. We've done this type of thing before, but uh, a lot of power in it. That's why I want us to do it again. Here's what I'd like for you to do. Would you think through your family situation and ask yourself very seriously and honestly, are there people that I'm having a difficult time putting up with? Are there strained relationships within my family? Maybe it's a husband and wife. Maybe it's parents. Maybe it's children. Maybe it's aunts, uncles, whatever it might be. Can you come up with those names? Most of us probably can. If you can, then I'm just going to ask you to boldly stand up right where you're at. Just stand up. And I'm going to have Brian Stewart, one of our elders, come and lead in a time of prayer. I'm not going to ask you to share the names of these people or any of the situations. I'm just going to ask you to stand up and then place those names between you and the Lord at the foot of his throne and ask him to heal the relationship and to give you insight into it. God responds to those types of prayers. It's necessary for us, though, to be bold and place them before him. So if you have difficult relationships, ones that are just hard for you to deal with, people that it's hard to get along with, and you don't know why, you just know that it's hard, would you just stand up right where you're at as Brian's on his way up here? And as we start into this time of prayer, I want to encourage you, in your mind, silently, to speak their names and tell God who it is. Place it before Him. He already knows. The power of this is in you acknowledging it, in you confessing it. And then Brian will lead us. Father God, as, as we stand humbly before you, Lord, is very evident by the number of people standing that there are strained relationships in our lives. Father, we do just put those, that, those relationships in your hands. Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to give us the mercy and the grace needed to stay the course, to not be focused on changing other people, but in our own lives, trying to reflect who you are by our actions and our words. Each person standing, Lord, has a name or names that are on their hearts right now. I pray for your spirit to go before us, Lord, to minister to the needs of those broken relationships that you may be glorified. And Lord, for those of us who maybe are the cause of someone standing here, Again, Lord, we pray for your mercy. Pray that you will give us the ability to 
submit to you so that our lives can reflect you and not reflect ourselves. As we go forth this week, Lord, I pray that you will be our focus and that you will be glorified by what takes place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.